Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. I'm Tim Little. We have Charlie and Andy here, and we're <laughs> hanging out in my office, and we're recording an episode here, episode number 121. Oh, boy. Well, now it's for sure. Charlie's going to be sharing day. something with us today. Whatever it is, it's going to be amazing. And Andy's got a books, a book for us <laughs> to discuss. And we're a week before Valentine's Day. <laughs> is that why you told me that I could open the episode? Yes. What do, what do you, what do Christians need to know about Valentine's Day, Tim? Valentine's Day, also known as a Singleness Awareness Day, Oof. is a time when you can you to reflect upon the uh, the love that you have for that special person in your life. Or we are recording this before Valentine's Day, so there yes. is a chance. Oh. Something can like, happen. You got one like week. a very, very small chance in the weeks leading up to this episode that I'm no longer single. But so I will be though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll have to revisit that in a couple of weeks. Tim, your openings. How about are, like a year from now? They're always the most the most special openings. They are horrendous. That's <laughs> no, better than that episode. All we did was make butter puns. The, that was better than this one. Yes, it was. <laughs> Anyway, do that, we have... Uh, so t- there's that thing we always that say. That thing that we always say. You Books say and business. Books and business. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if it was <laughs> like I a switch around. To say it? <laughs> I'm opening... We have some Thinklings business to tend to. That's it. Hey, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. There we go. Oh, man. Let's talk guys, about some books. Guys, this is the best episode this we've is ever horrendous. done. Listener, if I you hope you enjoy this. Listener, if you haven't figured out, Charlie loves this like when it goes awry. <laughs> it's like his favorite thing. <laughs> Okay, so today I have the book, and I'm going to talk about The Hobbit. So over Christmas break, I decided that I would read through this with my kids, and it was really fun. I I would recommend reading this book to your children out loud if you have them. If you don't, I would recommend reading it not right before you go to bed and like when you're awake and alert, because I think a lot of times I read these books before bed, and I think I missed a lot of this the first time I read it. So have you, you guys have both read The Hobbit. What do you think of The Hobbit? Tell me your thoughts on The Hobbit, if you have thoughts. And maybe it's been a while since you've read it. I am pro-Hobbit. That's boring. Uh, I like uh, I liked The Hobbit. I've read it mm-hmm. twice. Okay. Uh, once by myself and okay. the second time to my children. And it was a fun and engaging story. I, I remember enjoying the story. Uh, there were some slow points. Mm-hmm. Like it was really, I thought it was interesting how you said your kids enjoyed the beginning. I had to kind of push through the beginning. Um, but once kind of things started going, I think a lot of it had to do with how dad was reading it. Well, and I was I was going to ask you, did you use separate voices for separate characters? I, uh, I don't do that very well. But, I try, but it's really hard. But when the trolls... I'd want to eat them. Oh, did you make a troll voice? No, I did not make a troll voice. By did troll you talk voice, like this for like a southern Thorin. Englander? Yeah, right. And right. the other issue is <laughs> trying to have a variety of enough voices. This is this whole aesthetics and beauty thing that I'm still working through, and I'm trying to get better at it. So it was interesting. So when for the for the dwarves, it automatically went like Irish Scottish. So oh, nice. Thorin was always talking like this. He had the Irish accent or the Scottish accent or whatever, and he was always a bit angry. 
And then for Gandalf, I would just do like a low voice. But then when we got to the elves, like in a split second, I had to figure like, what does an elf sound like mm. in my head? And so I did a very thin voice, a bit foreboding. But the problem mm. was the elves are like full of mirth. So I think I, I whiffed, but it was the elf king who's kind of a goon in the move, in the story. Um, and then when we got to the lake men. I just used like men voices. Mm. But I, I will say that I think with little kids, the more I engaged in the story and like was shocked, like the kids were too. So when the dwarves kept coming and they just thought that was great, that was really funny. So the troll thing, I really think it was an interesting scene, but I do think they just liked that I made troll voices. Uh-huh. And then <laughs> for the next week, Evan's like, dad, are we going to read the Hobbit? I mean, it was like the most wretched troll voice ever. <laughs> I mean, there's not another troll in the movie or in the book either. No, it's just those three. That's it. Those yeah. three in the beginning. So, um, so what I really, I, I just, I thought it was a good story. It is interesting though, that, so like spoiler alert listener, I don't really care oh, though. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, if you've not read them or seen the movies, just, just this is it. fine. In just the share. end, how many pages does the battle of five armies in the book take? Oh yeah. Like two, three, <laughs> three. Because, because he gets knocked Why? out. He gets knocked out. Exactly. And when he's knocked out, he then hears the events later retold to him. But even in the retelling of the events, it's, it's very quick. Go ahead. I thought it was a brilliant way to have a major battle take place, but then not have to actually write about it. Oh, <laughs> for for a kid's story. Well, or just, you know, like, okay, we're gonna have this yeah. huge battle. And how am I going to draw out and explain what happens in this battle? I know. I'll have the main character just get knocked out right at the beginning. <laughs> and then he can just wake up and have a well, couple of details well, shared to him. I wonder if, I wonder how much he thought about that. Like if he was like, I just want to be done with it. So let's, how are we going to solve the problem? Like, oh, he gets knocked out. Like, is that how it came about? Or is like, if he was like very intentional, like I don't want a battle scene. So I'm curious because he actually foreshadowed the whole thing. At the very beginning, the battle's about to happen and he's nervous and Bilbo puts on the ring and he says, and a magical ring is good in a battle like that, even though it won't, it's not, won't make you invincible. Because a stray arrow or sword can still take your head off or knock you over. Mm-hmm. But it's still better than being visible. And so it was interesting that he pointed that out. And then like a page later, and it, it wasn't right at the beginning. I mean, the battle was going on. It was pretty intense. And then he gets hit. Yeah. So I don't know. But it was interesting because then the focus is not the action and the and like the fighting, the focus is on the result at the end and the sadness from what transpired and the loss, but also like the gain. Uh-huh. So it, it, I thought it was interesting the way it took place. So if I had to rank it, I'm going to rank it an eight, but also I'm going to make like three or four more comments. So I'd say going slow through it was good. And so if you read it, read it, read it a little slower. I was trying to read it fast the first time in bed and I think I didn't get as much. Two, I think... Reading it with different voices to kids is there's something about it that worked and I, it's probably because he wrote it for kids. Number three, <clears throat> there was a lot more opportunities than I expected to point out moral moments and discuss them with my kids. So we've talked about like five or six episodes ago, he gets out of the goblins in the misty mountains and he's safe with the ring, but he realizes his dwarf friends are still in there. Maybe they're alive. Should he go help? He doesn't want to. 
but he does the sacrificial thing and begins to turn around. And then thankfully he notices the dwarves are already out and, you know, over here, but that happens again at the end. So do you remember how they'd gotten into the mountain and they'd had all the treasure and then there's the big uh, contention with the lake men and the elves, right? What does he do? Do you remember? Because I did not remember until I read it this time. Where he he takes the jewel, the king's jewel, Mm -hmm. that whole thing, where he goes and he gives it to Gandalf and what's it, Thranduil, the, Uh, what's, what's, Bard and the elven king. I can't remember. Yeah, Thranduil, the elf king. Orlando Bloom's dad. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. No! What is his name? Thranduil. Yeah. I was close. Yeah, that was really good. Um, All I'm doing is saying it fast and saying authoritatively. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) So you're not actually sure? No. Oh my goodness. Tim just trolled us. Wow. No, he didn't troll us because it wasn't a British accent. (laughs) T-H-A-R-U-N-D-I-L. There you go. Come on. I even spelled it for you. So he takes the jewel from Thorin. Well, well, Thorin no. doesn't know that he already yeah, has it. Yeah, he doesn't know he has it. And then he, he puts his claim to the the fortune, like, that's this is my part of the fortune, and I'm going to mm-hmm. give it to them to solve this conflict. So we don't have war. Yep. He essentially, he, in, in his contract, he's going to get one fourteenth of the treasure, because there's 14 people in the company. And when he goes in, he finds the Urkenstone and keeps it before Thorin makes his pronouncement that that's mine, and anyone who takes it, I'll kill him or whatever. And then he gives it up for the sake of peace. And my daughter is like, but he'll still get treasure. And I was like, no, he act, and like, like she was affected by yeah, this. She was cool. like, what? And mm. like, she was almost sad that he wasn't going to get any treasure. And she, and, and in her, I could see her thinking like, why, why, why he's done all this. He needs treasure. I'm like, no, he was, he was doing the unselfish thing to try to keep this war from happening, even though it meant he wouldn't get any treasure. And like, she was wrestling with it as a five-year-old. Oh, there's, That's awesome. There's, there's so many yeah. layers to that too, because you could get into a discussion. Like, it's not just the riches. Like, he puts his whole relationship yes on the line yep. to protect him from yeah. himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then you could get into like, is it okay to lie to someone? It's like he hides this thing knowingly because he yeah. knows it's going to hurt him if he gives it to him way to open up a whole pile of ethical issues for a oh, five-year-old it's, it's all, but all of that could be circulating <laughs> <laughs> it, it is interesting and then um so so i, I thought that the real was, question is is the arkenstone a silmaril well I, the heart of the mountain okay moving on so what i thought was interesting is is that was not the first there were many times that i had an opportunity to stop yep. and talk about things and, and i didn't see that coming but it was good and so i liked that so if you know if you're if you're looking for that, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Now, again, I don't think the book is didactic on purpose. I don't think that it's a training manual. I don't think it's a discipleship book, but I'm just saying like there, there is some stuff. Um, there's two more things. Number one, at the very beginning, it talks about him having a Tukish side to him, Bilbo. That was, it just needed the right situation to come out. And I do think there's an, a good element of like ambition, like go out and do something. And sometimes you're not going to feel like you're ready. And what makes you ready is you get in the situation and you have to deny yourself and go on. And so I thought that part was kind of, the, it wasn't just needless adventure only for gain and all that for the dwarves. It was, but for Bilbo, there was like some virtuous angles. And then the last thing is 
I love the way he talked about the treasure hoard having an enchantment and the dragon had fallen to the, because dragons love gold. They love, they're greedy. But then when they killed the dragon and Thorin saw it, it was like his person changed because his idol was there and it like took him over. It was just a really interesting picture of idolatry to me. Mm. So I like the book. I give it an eight. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And I would heartily recommend it, especially for story hour. Awesome. That's yeah, a good one. I think the last time I read it through was when the movies came out and I wanted to read it before watching movies. Wow. That was a while ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've listened to it on audiobook since then, but as we've stated on the podcast, that is not reading. Yeah. And I, I will also say just, I want to give you another shout out, Tim, to your nice, beautiful volume you carry in the bookstore. Ooh. The pictures were just enough for like the little readers to like be able to see something. Mm. Um, it, 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 it was like perfect pacing every couple of pages would be a little picture and then you look at it and then like it was it was really good for the i thought it was very age appropriate i liked it a lot for the listener if you're wondering this is the only sewn nice copy of the hobbit at least that i've been able to find unless you're mm-hmm. going to spend like hundreds of dollars or some crazy really super nice one but it's a green cover and it has little pictures in it cool all right well let's have a conversation about discipleship so we're, we kind of have taken a break from our 12 discipleship questions. It's been a while. And so we're getting back into it. And where we left off, I believe, was on question nine. So today we're going to talk about question 10. And let me get the notes in front of me. Question 10 is, it's the start of the third section. So there's three sections in the book. One of them is discerning God's will, and that's where we started. Question number one, like, what is God's will, right? If you remember that. And then section two is controlled by the Spirit. So we kind of walk through this paradigm of where we have difficulties that happen in life, and we're faced with a lot of scenarios where our own affections and sinful nature would lead us to live a fleshly life, be controlled by our flesh, and that is contrasted in scripture with being controlled by God's spirit. And we've talked through that, like what is walking in the spirit, all those types of discussions. And uh, so ultimately we want to be trained, train ourselves to walk in the spirit so that the Holy Spirit can transform us. And section three is titled a treasure in the vessel. And that's pulling from second Corinthians four verse seven and what I think Paul does in 2 Corinthians 2 through, and depending on where you want to cut the section off, we could say like just chapter 7 vaguely, is he's, he's laying out, in a sense, his ministry philosophy to the Corinthians. And there's a very nuanced history of Paul's interaction with the Corinthians. We know that there's more than two letters that were written that he alludes to them within these epistles. Uh, some commentary. Uh, commentators think that there's even up to five uh, letters that had gone back and forth, the two in the Bible being two of the five. We know he took multiple trips to Corinth, and some of them were good, and some of them were bad. He references a painful visit. And uh, it's not not unlike other locations, but Paul had opponents, and he had people who liked to undermine the ministry that he was doing. And so what we have in Second Corinthians two, three, and four, really at the heart of it. So I think Paul is establishing why he did what he did, or in a sense, why he's doing what he's doing. And 
that is intended to kind of bolster his own ministry, like what he did in Corinth. But it's also, I think, trying to demonstrate to them, you know, hey, this is what ministry is. Like, this is why we do the things we do. And so, uh, so we're going to walk through a, a big portion of that, uh, or try to on the podcast, probably in a couple of episodes. The, this chapter of the book is the longest one of the book, question 10, which is the question is what happens when I respond to trials the correct way? And so we've already talked about this in section one and two. We walk in the spirit, we deny the flesh, and, and God through his spirit will change us. And we, we learn to obey the word, not just in an external fashion, but that our, our loves would actually align with the word of God, that we would do the right thing because we actually want to do the right thing, that we, we change over time. And uh, so we've, we've kind of discussed that, but Paul discusses that idea discipleship or sanctification, he discusses that in the midst of his ministry philosophy. And I think that it's really helpful to understand why Paul would, I think, jump on board with our 12 questions here, like why he would see this as vital in in the life of a believer. So question 10, what happens when I respond to trials the correct way? And the, the simple answer, and I'm going to answer it how I think Paul would answer it, uh, is, is ministry happens. <laughs> ministry happens. And it's true that there are personal benefits to sanctification, right? So like when we're saved, we are freed from sin. And as we grow and our affections change, I think we do have a better life. You know, the good life, quote unquote, I think we experience that on a personal level, more when our lives align with God's word and what he wants for us. So it's personal benefits. You think about the fruit of the spirit. Do you want love and joy and peace and patience and those things? Of course you do. And as you learn to walk in the spirit, you, you experience that. Paul is not really focused on what I get through that transformation. He, he focuses on that transformation. He's looking at those fruits of the Spirit, that character that changes. And instead of saying, these are the personal benefits of it, he's going to say, as that's happening in your life, here are the benefits that other people are going to get as a result of your transformation. And I think that's why it's his ministry philosophy. As you are transformed, ministry is happening through you to other people. And so we'll start walking through that uh, in 2 Corinthians 2 and starting in verses 14 through 17. And we read these uh, on a previous episode. We'll read them again, and then I'll note a little bit of the context and we'll look at them intentionally. So 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, 
as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So before we go any farther, just throw it out to my comrades. What do you notice about those verses? Is there something that's repeated? The idea of smell comes up both in the word fragrance and then the word aroma. Yes. In three out of four, maybe I think it's all three. Yeah. It'd be 14, 15, and 16. They're all, they're six, they're smelly. Yeah. We're, we're talking a lot about smell in, in this passage. And that's kind of a unique thing. Like, what does he mean when he's talking about this aroma, this fragrance? And I think he's using an illustration to help make his point. And that's really going to be the focus of what we look at here. Uh, and so that's exactly what I was hmm. looking for. Hmm. There is, there's one other thing that is repeated. If you can, maybe we'll, we'll look at Tim to find this one because Andy answered the first one. Uh, the smell was, the responses to the smell was what I was going to highlight. And then sure. the setting it up with the triumphal procession. Uh, those were the, my two highlights. I'm not sure what the repeated word that you're after. Yeah. So he, he mentions like th- there's uh, among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. So saved and death in mm-hmm. verse 15. And yeah. then that comes up again in verse 16 to one death to death, the fragrance of death to death to the other, the fragrance of life to life. So there's kind of a repetition of that idea <clears throat> yeah. of there is this smell. The two different responses. And there's these two different. It's a contrast. It's almost, but what's interesting is it is the aroma of Christ, but to one group, it's not the aroma of Christ. It's the smell of death. And then the aroma of Christ is the smell of life to another group. So it's like these groups of people are smelling the smell and it's different depending on who's smelling it. And, and notice that the first group is actually not people at all. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Oh, interesting. Huh. So there's these groups of people smelling the smell of my life. And depending on who's smelling it, it's a different smell. So we're going to come back to the smell in a moment. But what I want to point out contextually is that verse 14 is a bit of an anomaly. If you look at verse 12 and 13, what is Paul discussing? When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of his knowledge, the knowledge of him everywhere. So I, I, I didn't look it up before I got to our recording today, but there is a commentator who calls chapter two, verse 14 through like chapter seven, he calls it the great digression. Huh. It's a great title. Commentators aren't really sure or they pose creative solutions to like, what in the world is Paul doing here? Because he, he like runs away from this discussion of Macedonia and his travel plans. And that comes, Titus is mentioned in verse 13. He leaves Troas, goes to Macedonia. We don't hear about that again until chapter seven. So there's this little chunk that's completely like, why are we doing this? And this gets back into the background where there's this rocky relationship with Paul and the Corinthians and the previous letter, not necessarily first Corinthians, but a previous correspondent, uh, correspondence was sent with Titus to Corinth. 
That's what most commentators will say. And so Titus delivers a letter from Paul to Corinth, and then Titus is returning, and Paul is expecting him at Troas. And Paul is so upset, or he calls it, his spirit is not at rest, verse 13. He's so uh, burdened with what is going on from Corinth, he's eagerly looking for Titus to see if they've responded the correct way. And so, you know, they can't just check Facebook. You can't, you know, text someone on your iPhone. Like, the only way Paul is going to learn about the Corinthians is either Titus sends a letter and Paul receives it, or the more likely of the two, Titus leaves from Corinth with the report and comes back and finds Paul. So Paul is doing ministry in Troas, and he describes it very positively. There's an open door. Good things are happening. But because I didn't find Titus, I shut the door and I left. Now, how does that sound to you? Like, well, the door's open for ministry, but because Titus isn't there, I'm out. Does it sound a little bit kind of like, what in the world? That is why Paul starts into his ministry philosophy. I think the question he's answering with verse 14 is, does ministry stop even if I leave the open door behind. And I think his opponents would pick up on that too. Earlier in the Second Corinthians, he comments about how some of the Corinthians were kind of sketched out with his travel plans. Like you said you were coming, but you didn't. And it's like, well, did you let your yes be yes and your no be no? That whole discussion earlier in Second Corinthians 1. What he's saying here is that actually... Whether I stay in one location, go to another location, stay with the open door, go to another place where I don't know what's going on, in all of those places, ministry is still going to happen. Why? Because everywhere, Christ leads us in a triumphal procession and spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's, I think... The geographical distinction in verse 14 is specific. I can leave the open door behind at Troas because Christ leads the triumph and diffuses the fragrance everywhere. Okay, you with me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm smelling smelling what you're cooking. Smelling what we're cooking. So the the picture of (laughs) verse 14 is like a general. The emperor or some victory has been won and they would come back to the city and like they would lead this big parade of the victor and with with the victor and the victorious army would be the captives and paul borrows upon that imagery and says here christ has won the victory he's the triumphant one and everywhere i go christ is leading in victory and as he's doing that he's spreading the fragrance and this would be something that they would know about because they would burn incense at these big victory parades. And so Paul is calling upon this imagery of like, you know when we have a big military victory and the general leads the triumph and you can smell it in the air? Like there's, it's a party. Like there would have been foods being cooked in the streets and huge crowds and there'd be the incense being burnt as the army goes down the streets of the city. He's like, just like that. Everywhere I go is the smell of victory, baby. And what is the smell? It is the knowledge of him. 
So I think that that does mean there's a proclamation of the gospel that is happening. And he's going to establish this later on. Really, it starts in verse 17, but it continues in chapter 3 and 4, that it's not just a proclamation of what is true, but it's backed up by his character. Actually, what he says is emboldened and, and founded by the transformation that Christ has brought in his life. And it's, <clears throat> on a side note, it's interesting, at our church right now, we're going through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 9, Saul, Paul gets saved, and some of the first things that Christians say about him is, hold on, isn't this the guy who, like, brutally murdered and, like, took cap Christians captive, and the only re reason he's in Damascus is to enslave us? Wait, isn't this that guy? And he, it's like, yep, but he's not anymore. And, and so it's just interesting that he's, I think that's what he's pointing at here is that through, we, through the proclamation of the gospel in word and in his changed life, wherever he goes, that fragrance comes out. It's, it's the aroma of his life is the idea. And uh, look, pick it up in verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ. It's like people get the knowledge, the picture, the information of the gospel of Christ through them. We are that aroma. First to God, we're living a consistent life to God. And that's where I think you bring in the, the character side of it because God knows the gospel. It's not like the aroma is only the proclamation of the gospel to God. Mm -hmm. like you're not sharing the gospel to God. It's like my life is the life of Christ to God. I'm, I'm being humble and obeying. So we do that to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one fragrance of death to death, to the other fragrance from life to life. I think the very simple picture is, as Paul goes around, there's a smell. And that smell is teaching and training people who Christ is. And some respond positively, some respond negatively. And I don't think that's a really weird concept think we would say a lot of things like that today. What's super interesting is what follows in verse 16. He asks a question. Who is sufficient for these things? So the word there for sufficient is just a very simple word like who's able, like who, who's worthy to do that? Like who is worthy to be a diffuser of the, of the fragrance of Christ? And so you think about that. What skills and like prerequisites are there to being a minister, to being a diffuser of the knowledge of Christ? And I think in a very real sense, the answer to that is, uh, answer to Paul's question, who is sufficient, who has the skills, who has the prerequisites? If we look at ourselves, it's like, no one. <laughs> no one is sufficient. But then just glance down into chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ to God, not that we are sufficient. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So 
Paul starts off his ministry philosophy by saying, you know, it's really simple. Everywhere I go, they smell Christ. But you know where that smell came from? It's not from me. It's not that I'm sufficient of myself, not that I know enough, not that I can do enough. My confidence is that God made me sufficient. And so what he's going to do, starting in, he starts in the beginning of chapter three, and he's going to extend it down through the end of chapter three, is he's going to tell us how God makes us sufficient. So far, he's just simple illustration of smell and hey it's not like i'm sufficient you know who is sufficient well no one but god will make us sufficient so i think that is probably a good place to cap the the conversation on this episode you know who is sufficient no one and you know we think about our 12 questions and you start thinking about discipleship one who who can do this on their own like can you just, you know, read the right books, pray enough, like, and then poof, I finally, I am now a discipler or I've, I've been transformed enough. Like I'm ready. The answer to that question, like who is sufficient for this? It's always like, I got nothing. But if you recognize sin at work within and you yield to God's spirit, he will make you sufficient. He will change your loves, change your affections, He'll transform you into, and I'm changing the illustration a bit, he'll change you into the image of Christ, uh, which, you know, or the smell of him, you know. So who's sufficient? You think about 12 discipleship questions, like, can I do this? No. Can I disciple someone else? Nope. You know, <laughs> you got nothing. But if you'll train yourself to respond the right way, God will make you sufficient. And, and he's going to unpack pack that a lot more in chapter three. But that's a great place to start with understanding, you know, what happens when I respond to trials the correct way? Paul's first illustration is himself. As he goes from town to town, and he's going to explain his difficulties in chapter four, but as he goes from Troas to Macedonia, as he's dealing with conflict between the Corinthians and himself, he's being made sufficient, and an aroma is being put forth. And as he responds to those things the correct way, some are smelling the aroma of Christ, and it's leading them to life. His ministry is dependent on God making him sufficient and diffusing that aroma. Now, he's going to change that image from smell to light. It's the same thing, same exact point, but he's going to get away from the smell stuff and he's going to start talking about light, like how God produces his glory in people's hearts. And that's really chapter three through the beginning of chapter four, to where he gets to, to chapter four, verse seven, and he says, we have this treasure in this earthen vessel. What he's referring to is the treasure is the, the glory of Christ and the glory of Christ's character. But so question 10, you know, part one answer, what happens when I respond to trials the correct way? Simple answer is ministry will happen. To look at the first part of second Corinthians two into chapter three, what does Paul mean when he says that? Well, when I respond to trials the right way, there's a smell. 
And that smell is not me. That smell is the humble, obedient character of Christ. And it's pleasing to God, and it leads some people to life, and some people reject it and want nothing to do with the gospel. But that is what happens when I start to respond to trials the correct way. So uh, before we close, I want to get I want to get some comments. They're shaking their heads, but I want to get some comments. Do you got one, Tim? I got one, but... So when you were talking about the procession earlier, mm-hmm. so here's Paul. He's he's on his path to ministry, and then he the door is... Let's see, the door is closed. Yeah, he's an open door at Troas. Yeah. Yep. But he couldn't find Titus, so he doesn't go. And so you, you said something about, um, there's, here's a ministry opportunity left on the table, but he won't go because Titus is not there. Yeah. Um, did you mean to imply that, cr- like with the tri- triumphal procession, Christ would have been the head of the army, the general. He's going, and we're like the soldiers falling behind. And so, like, you go here, and there's an opportunity. You can't do it. You have to go to this other one. But the smell is, like, Christ is still one. He's still in control, and we can trust him. Even if we miss ministry opportunities, did, were you meaning to imply that? I, I wasn't well, sure. I, I'm not sure if I would use the word miss, but Paul is very aware of the fact that he is having good ministry happen in one location. Like, mm-hmm. hey, the door's open. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we even still use that terminology, like pray for open yeah. doors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, look at all these open doors that God is giving you. And he's like, well, because Titus wasn't there, I left him. <laughs> and I think part of his confidence is that the the open door isn't what is the ministry. Yes. Okay. Like, it's not that, oh, look, I've got this open door in front of me. Take it. He knows that as long as he's being transformed and he okay. goes to somewhere else, the aroma is going to go with him. Doors are going to open there too. P- people are going to smell it and... Here we go. Here's more open doors. So my thought was just that you take that and those people who I think specifically of full-time ministers, but I think of people who are being faithful where they're at and here you are, you're having a lot of successes. And then you have this other opportunity to go over here and you're afraid like, man, there's a success here. What if I go there and there's not, that is a very modern pragmatic numbers return on investment way of thinking. But it looks like Paul is eschewing that he's, he's eschewing that he's saying, yeah, I'm having, but but I'm going to go here. Be, and he's it's it's like an example of him trusting Christ. Yeah, no matter what the outcome is, Absolutely. because he's going to bring the smell that's Christ's smell, and Christ is going to do the work. So I just thought it was a trusting God in ministry situation. Well, and I have had to, I've heard or heard of discussions like, man, look at all the fruit. Like, how could you? Yeah. Like, how could you see it as God's will to to leave that? Hmm? Like, look how God's blessing you. Yeah. And usually that is in the vernacular of a pastor leaving a church or something mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, that's exactly what's happening with Paul. And Paul's like, well, he'll do it over there too. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, are there people there? Okay. Well, if I'm diffusing mm-hmm. the aroma, like if that's there and there are people there, some will respond. Mm-hmm. Like, so I thought yeah. that was a, a helpful admonition to not uh, fear and, and trust in yourself when you see results, but to remember that was from God and he will do it wherever he'll do it and to trust him. So I, I thought that was very particularly nourishing for my soul. Well, and there's, as I, we, we teach through this in every discipleship class here at faith that I teach and the statement that I make, and this will come up again, probably in part two or part three on the podcast here is as long as you have, you know, I'll use his illustration in these verses as long as you have the aroma, 
you can't screw it up. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, should I have, should I have said this to that neighbor? Mm. Should I have waited another day? You know, should I, should I have gone to that? Should I have invited them? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh. Yeah. All and it's like, deep, oh, yeah. you know, well, all of those are the right answer if you have the fragrance. Mm. And that, and that's not like a static decision. Like in this one moment of contact that I had with them, was I filled with the spirit in that one moment? I was great. That's a success. It's, it's actually more like you live life around people yeah, and they will actually see a lot of moments when you're not walking in the spirit, they'll see your flesh and then you have to humble yourself and Hey, I was wrong. Like, will you forgive me? And guess what? Our world doesn't do that. Nope. Uh, you know, unsaved neighbors typically don't go to other unsaved neighbors and admit that they were wrong. Yeah, sure. Maybe every now and then, but that is like a genuine character, like virtue. They don't see that. And so they see a pattern in your life where, you know, he's actually really humble. He'll admit when he's wrong. And he always, he's just, you know, he sometimes does the wrong thing, but then he always reconciles and he always comes back, you know, and, and what are they seeing? Mm-hmm. Uh, a humility that's willing to die. And in Christ, that's a willingness to die on the cross. In us, that's a willing to die to our own desires. And you display that to them. They're not seeing you. Because the Spirit enables you to genuinely humble yourself. And I, you know, so I always, if you have that aroma, you can't screw it up. But I also say this, that the hardest thing God asks you to do every day is humble yourself. Because you hate it. <laughs> uh, you, you, and we'll say we, we, plural, all of us, we hate doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as we do that, the aroma is there and people will see, uh, I won't say see, that's the wrong illustration. They'll smell that aroma if that's the pattern of our life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. Thank you for listening.